Hey everybody, it's the With a Bullet Podcast. I'm Matt Golden. Uh, we finally made it to the sixth installment of our six-part series on the decline of alternative rock radio. And this episode covers um, Billboard's Top 40 Alternative Songs from September 11th, 1999. Um, exactly two years before that whole thing happened. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, but this is by far the worst chart in the series. Not only that, but this might be the worst chart that I've done in the history of this podcast. The planes hit the mountain here. Uh, the ships already sank. This entire radio format's basically dead. And the worst people possible ended up like grabbing a parachute or getting on the lifeboat. That's kind of what we're dealing with on this chart. I mentioned this in the last episode, but for most of the year I was living in a city which didn't really have an alternative station. Uh, the station in Cincinnati switched to Top 40, so I really only got to experience this stuff in the couple of months that I um, spent up in the Twin Cities every year while I was passing through Chicago on the way up there or on the way back. Um, it took about two hours to drive through Chicago, so I did kind of tune in while I was passing through there uh, just to catch up on what was going on in mainstream alternative rock, for better or worse. Usually for the worse, it just kept getting worse. But this was also kind of the hardest one to do because I wasn't really being constantly barraged by this stuff like I was with the stuff on the other charts. Uh, there isn't really any nostalgia for me for any of these songs. There aren't really any hidden gems. It, it's just bad. Uh, that said, let's just kind of get into this here. Um, at number 40, we have Train with Meet Virginia. Yeah, that's right. This chart is so bad that it starts out with Train. Uh, these guys became a force on the adult contemporary charts of the 2000s. They've racked up 27 hits on that chart. I, I'm sure most people are familiar with songs like Drops of Jupiter and Hey, Soul Sister. Almost all of their singles have been terrible. I mean, just glancing at their discography, I was reminded of their song that rips off Hoagie Carmichael's Heart and Soul and just like immediately felt nauseous. But all of that had to start somewhere, and that's where Meet Virginia comes in. Uh, this song's about a quirkster, uh, my term there, or to borrow a term that popped up a few years after this. Uh, she's a manic pixie dream girl that Pat Monahan from Train was smitten with. Uh, but it turns out that she's being quirky just to hide the pain that she has inside. Oh, no. Um, there wasn't a single Virginia who inspired the song. It was a composite of several Virginias that the people in the band knew and in the video she's played by rebecca gayhart remember rebecca gayhart well she was an oxima girl and um she's a waitress at a diner here um she's cute she's quirky uh the cooks love her the customers love her um gayhart's presence in this video probably got this on mtv and mtv2 um, this was on very heavy rotation at mtv2 and that's probably why it ended up on this chart uh, the, the chorus of this song has always kind of annoyed me. It's kind of a weird off-putting mix of the Counting Crows and Live, uh, which is annoying enough. But then Pat Monahan rhymes life with life and queen with queen, which kind of puts it over the top, kind of nails out the chalkboard type stuff. But this one peaked at number 25 on here. And amazingly, this wasn't their only alternative hit. Um, Drops of Jupiter actually made it here on in 2001 which is kind of hilarious but train are still around um they're still churning out crap but pat monahan's the only original member left in the group uh number 39 uh, vertical horizon with we are a couple of episodes when the live ripoffs started popping up i kind of alluded to the fact that we'd eventually get to some bands that sounded like ripoffs of the ripoffs and well 
here we are. Um, Vertical Horizon had been around for a while. Uh, they put out two albums on indie labels earlier in the 90s, um, but this was from the Razor label debut. So it's kind of doubtful if they started in the early 90s that they were ripping off um, Tonic, Matchbox 20, or the Verve Pipe. They just kind of sounded like they were. I didn't really remember this song, but it sounds almost exactly like those three bands that I mentioned. It's basically just Tonic, Matchbox 20, and the Verve Pipe. Um, this one peaked at number 21. Um, their follow-up to this, Everything You Want, was a much bigger hit. It was actually a number one single on the regular Top 40 uh, for a single week in summer of 2000. And as far as I can tell, that was just the second number one to have originally just been released on Alternative Rock Radio. The first was actually uh, Bare Naked Ladies One Week, uh, which I talked about in last episode. And that song was also Billboard's most played single of that year, which isn't surprising um, if you were alive in the year 2000. And it also more or less sounds exactly like Tonic, Matchbox 20, and The Verve Pipe. Number 38, we have Jimmy's Chicken Shack with Do Right. Um, Jimmy's Chicken Shack were from Maryland. Um, this might surprise you, but they were led by a guy named Jimmy. Um, his name was Jimmy Haha, which I'm assuming isn't his real name, but I didn't really bother to check into that. Uh, they kind of fell into that whole mid-Atlantic frat dude scene that I described in the last episode. Um, they built up a pretty big following around Baltimore and initially signed to Elton John's vanity label, Rocket Records, a label that I was shocked to find out still existed in the mid-90s. Um, the only artists that I can think of offhand um, who even recorded for that label were Neil Sadaka and Kiki D. So these guys probably fit in right in there with those two. <laughs> but um, anyway, this, this song is kind of ska adjacent. It's not actual ska. The only thing that really prevented it from being ska is a lack of horns. But anyway, the first thing that popped into my mind when I saw this on this chart is uh, these guys' ridiculously lame performance of the song on um, Conan O'Brien's show. I regularly watched Conan, so I wasn't like tuning in just to see these guys. But anyway, the performance itself is like essentially what you're hearing on the right record. So it's that's not the lame part. The lame part is that their guitarist was wearing a shirt that had four on the front. Um, Jimmy Haha was wearing a shirt with two on the front. And the bass player was wearing one with a zero on the front. So it's 420. I noticed this right away. And I just remember letting out like the biggest groan ever. Um, stoner doofus culture was already starting to wear on me at this point. And I was way past like the coolest shaker days in 99. But anyway, this moment stuck in my mind somewhere for 23 years. So when I saw Jimmy's chicken shack, I was like, oh, it's the 420 shirt guys. And this whole thing is on YouTube. So I actually got to revisit it. The funny thing is that the 420 shirts were so lame that I completely forgot about Jimmy whipping off his hat at the chorus and revealing his mane of white boy dreads, which is also lame, but also pretty funny. But Anyway, this song kind of sucks. It peaked at number 12, and it was their only alt-rock hit. On uh, number 37, we have Stained with Mud Shovel. Uh, this is only the second song that, by Stained that I've ever knowingly heard, and I never heard it before I started doing research for the series. Uh, the, the other was their big ballad, um, It's Been a While, which was a big hit a couple of years after this. But 
anyway, these guys were from Massachusetts. Um, they got their big break a couple years before this when they landed a spot opening up for Limp Biscuit, a job which almost ended before it started because um, Fred Durst caught a glimpse of the cover of their first indie label. And based on how it looked, he thought that these guys were Satanists and he didn't want to deal with them. Um, noted morals crusader Fred Durst. But anyway, um, Fred Durst didn't fire him from the gig. And they impressed him so much in the opening slot that Fred actually got them a deal with Limp Bizkit's label and the rest is new metal history, I guess. Uh, the song originally appeared on the album that Fred Durst thought was satanic, but they uh, re-recorded it for their second album. Um, th the, this version is just slightly more polished. I mean, really the only difference between the, I mean, that's really the only difference between the two. I mean, it's just extremely generic new metal. It's kind of boring, really. Uh, but this one peaked at number 14. It was their first single to make it on this chart. Um, they've actually made it 18 times since then. And, have reached the top three times, which kind of surprised and horrified me. Uh, but like I mentioned, the only one of these that I can actually remember is it's been a while. Um, their lead singer, Aaron Lewis, um, has turned to country in the last decade or so. And he, he actually had a number one hit on the country charts last year with his mega anthem, um, Am I the Only One? It's mainly about protesting statues being removed, but he also takes a weird shot at Bruce Springsteen in the middle of it. Uh, the video adds some more shots for um, Black Lives Matter, COVID lockdowns, and it's mixed with extremely reverent footage of troops, American flags, Robert E. Lee statues, Blue Lives Matter flags, and so on. It, it's um, exactly what you'd expect from a MAGA country video. It's pretty horrible, but then again, it's a lot more memorable than this song. Um, but moving on to number 36, we have Cake with Let Me Go. Um, the return of Cake here. Uh, this is their second appearance in the series. Um, their first since the 96 episode. Uh, Let Me Go was their follow-up single to Never There, which was their biggest single on this chart. Their only single to go to number one. But anyway, this one is a little bit different from them. Um, John McRae is actually attempting to sing here. He's not doing his usual spoken word thing. Uh, the band doesn't shout out anything in unison at any point in this. Uh, the trumpet solo is somewhat subdued. It's kind of buried under the guitar solo. And I don't even think that there's any vibra slap in here. But it somehow managed to, manages to sound like almost every other Cake single um, somehow. But uh, this only peaked at number 28. Um, they've made it back to this chart six times since then with... Other songs that more or less sound like this one, The Distance, or Never There. And they are still around out there touring, but surprisingly, they have not put out an album in 11 years. But anyway, moving on to number 35, we have Cottonmouth Kings with Bump. Uh, just some really incredibly shitty rap metal. It's like Insane Clown Posse, but worse. Uh, these guys were actually regulars at the Gathering of the Juggalos, too, which isn't really surprising. I don't remember this one at all, but supposedly it peaked at number 28. It's bad. It is really bad. Uh, but moving on to number 34, we have Orgy with Stitches. Uh, this was their debut single. They were on Elementary Records, which was um, Korn's vanity label. And they, they more or less do sound like Korn, but it's like industrial Korn. It's like if Korn tried to cover something from Pretty Hate Machine or something like that. Um, that's essentially what you're getting here. I 
remember the very expensive looking video for this popping up on MTV fairly regularly, but I don't remember making it any more than like five seconds of it um, at the time before like changing the channel. And I revisited it for this episode. It turns out that I didn't really miss that much of that video. I mean, aside from the fact that they looked like a got version of the Backstreet Boys, I mean, that's pretty much all that I got out of it. But anyway, this song peaked at number 18. Uh, they would have a much bigger hit with their cover of New Order's Blue Monday, which came out shortly after this, which honestly isn't really that bad for a new metal cover. <laughs> uh, but they are still sort of around. Um, their lead singer ended up with the rights to their name and hired a few other guys to be like the goth Nick Carter or the goth AJ McLean. And they are touring, but it looks like they might be at a level lower than the alternative only circuit. Uh, most of their tour dates are at bars. Like, for example, the closest tour date to where i live was at a bar in janesville wisconsin i can't imagine like any name act ever playing at janesville wisconsin but i guess orgy did but anyway um moving on to number 33 we have moby with body rock uh, this was the third single from his play album an album which was sort of inescapable in 99 and 2000 because a movie decided to license every single song on the thing for like either a commercial a movie soundtrack uh, a tv show or a video game for example this song um, ended up in ads for rolling rock calvin klein it was the theme song to the tv show veronica's closet for a little while I mean, it was used in one of the fifa games there's probably more examples out there but anyway you couldn't get away from him uh play ended up selling 12 million copies worldwide and he was even big enough where like eminem tried to start with a start a feud with him for some unknown reason but anyway uh, Body Rock was a little bit different than the first two singles off of the album because Moby wasn't sampling field recordings from old blues songs on this one. Um, instead, he turned to old school rap here. Um, so you're getting Spoonie G and the Treacherous Three instead of like Bessie Smith and Lead Belly or whatever. But um, Moby said that his managers actually tried to get him to leave this song off of the album because it sounded like Fatboy Slim. And they were 100% right about that. I mean, even the video for this has like a similar theme to Fatboy Slim's Praise You video, which is essentially just amateurs dancing really badly to techno. I mean, it's a ripoff, but I mean, to be honest, it's probably the most tolerable track on the album. Uh, th this was his first entry ever on the alternative charts. It peaked at number 26. Uh, three other tracks from play would eventually make it on here, along with um, We Are Made of Stars from his follow-up album, 18, uh, which came out a couple years after this. But it's been uh, 20 years since Moby has graced this chart with his presence. Um, he is still putting out albums, but none of them have been nearly as successful as play. At number 32, we have Godsmack with Whatever. More new metal. Yay, I love new metal. I like Stain. These guys were from Massachusetts. I mean, who knew that Massachusetts was such a new metal hotbed? I just kind of assumed that all these bands came from either Florida or the shittier parts of California, but I guess not. Uh, th this was their first single, and it's about trying to maintain a relationship when you're in a rock band. So it's basically the same as beth by kiss except for it's a lot meter so instead of peter chris um apologizing to beth because um um 
Gene Simmons is being a huge jerk and won't let him leave until he gets like cold gin right or whatever. You get Sully, Sully Erna, the guy from Godsmack, saying, back off, bitch. I'm in a moderately successful new metal band. Just deal with it. Or as he actually says in the song, you better fucking go away. Um, nice guy, Sully Erna. Uh, but anyway, this song is terrible. It peaked at number 19, and these guys somehow ended up becoming staples on this chart for the first decade of the century. Uh, they racked up 18 hits, um, all of which I assume sound exactly like this song. Uh, Godsmack doesn't really have much range. But um, anyway, on to number 31 here. We have Unwritten Law with Kaylin. Uh, these guys were a pump punk Ah, pop punk band from San Diego, um, though pop punk might not be the proper genre tag for this song. It basically sounds like whatever genre ever clear or lit we're supposed to be. And um, this song is an ode to the daughter of lead singer Scott Russo, who's obviously named Kaylin. Um, she's in the video for this, too. She was maybe about four or five at the time, but she's up on stage um, standing next to her dad while he's singing this to her in front of like a throng of Southern Cal punk dudes moshing along to it. It's, it's kind of cute actually, but uh, this one almost didn't make it out as a single. Um, Unwritten Laws uh, first couple singles basically didn't do anything on the radio and their, their label wasn't interested in putting out a third single, which probably would have also tanked, but the band really believed in the song and they got their manager to pull some strings with some DJs around California, uh, got it on the radio and more or less forced the label to promote it. But I didn't really remember this one, um, but it's not really that bad, I guess. Um, it peaked at number 28. Um, this was obviously their first appearance on here, but it wouldn't be their last. Uh, they actually topped this chart with Seeing Red a couple of years after this, and I'm sure that everybody remembers that one. Um, yeah. But number 30, we have Kid Rock with Bawa Taba. Um, Donald Trump's favorite rapper. <laughs> and this was his first hit ever on this chart. Uh, this would not have been possible without the Beastie Boys. And I'm not saying that because he's a white rapper and they're white rappers. They did actually play a role here. Um, Kid Rock put out a couple of albums in the early 90s, which were kind of a juvenile frat boy type stuff. And the Beastie Boys in their inner circle kind of latched onto these albums as a joke. Um, they're essentially just listening to it. Um, to make fun of it and their ironic um kid rock fandom probably wouldn't have made it outside of their inner circle if the beastie boys didn't run their own magazine um the magazine was called grand royal and its biggest claim to fame was actually coining the term mullet but anyway they're short on ideas for their issue and um they just happened to be listening to one of kid rock's albums at the time and somebody blurted out you know hey why don't we interview this moron so um they were intending on doing like a jokey, you know, look at this idiot style hit piece. And the guy they sent out to Michigan to interview him um, kind of ended up hitting it off with him. So what ended up what should have been a hit piece kind of ended up turning into a glowing profile of Kid Rock. And uh, the Beasties were kind of arbiters of the cool, of cool around this time period. So with like an article praising him and their magazine um he kind of became cool um, he had their approval their gold stamp and he got another chance to put out more crap so because of that eventually you ended up with stuff like american badass or the sweet home alabama werewolves of london song but 
first you get this it's it's about getting in the pit and trying to love somebody <laughs> um the title is thought by most people to come from rapper's delight by the sugar hill gang and while it is inspired by that they don't actually say bawa da ba da dang da dang did he did he say the boogie said up jump the boogie they say bang bang boogie say up jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat but i mean who really cares about that i mean he leans into his whole extremely genuine um white trash pit persona with shout outs to hookers crackheads and um heroes at the methadone clinic clinic along with his homies at county all people that he definitely crossed paths with um in the battle zone of the northern suburbs of detroit uh, but anyway this song is about what you'd expect from him um, the first time i remember this popping up on mtv i just kind of assumed that it was a joke but unfortunately it wasn't um this ended up peaking at number 10 on this chart which seems low based on how often i remember hearing this but anyway we are not done with kid rock he has another song in the top 10 on this chart so um yeah Number 29, uh, Splendor with Yeah Whatever. Um, this is about as bland as alt-rock can possibly get. I do remember this song, but just barely. It was produced by Todd Rundgren, though, so it has that going for it. I, I remember reading an article where somebody from the 12 Rods, who were another alt-rock band that Todd produced around this time, said that pretty much all that he did in the studio was press record and then just kind of like went back and worked on his crossword puzzle. I mean, that's kind of what I assume that he did for Splendor here. I mean, there's really not much going on in it, but this was their only hit on this chart and it ended up peaking at number 24. Uh, number 28, we have Pearl Jam with Last Kiss. Uh, Pearl Jam are one of only three bands to have appeared in the first and last installment of the series. Uh, the, the other two are up in the top 10. Um, anyway, this is, song is Pearl Jam's biggest hit. Um, not Alive, not Black, not Jeremy, not Yellow Lead Better. Instead, it's a cover of a Wayne Cochran song from 1961. Uh, this was one of the many um, teen tragedy ballads that popped up in the post-Buddy Holly, pre-Beatles, um, dead zone of the early 60s. All these are the same. The boyfriend and girlfriend are in, are in like a horrible car wreck or a motorcycle crash. Uh, one of them dies or is on the verge of death. They hug and kiss each other one last time. And then the surviving boyfriend or girlfriend is completely devastated. There, I, I just described this song, uh, Teen Angel by Mark Dinning, the leader of the pack, and probably about 100 other songs that came out in 1962. But anyway, this one was supposedly inspired by a real accident, um, one that killed the sister of Wayne Cochran's drummer's girlfriend. And uh, the single was actually dedicated to her. Uh, Cochran released four different versions on four different labels between 61 and 63, but none of these made it any higher than like the bubbling under chart. But a copy of one of these ended up in the hands of the guy who was managing uh, a Texas group called J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers. And he thought that it was perfect for this group, and he more or less forced it on them. And um, their version ended up becoming a pretty big hit. Um, it peaked at number two, on the Hot 100 in the fall of 64. Uh, the Supremes' baby love ended up keeping it off the top, and they were never able to follow it up because the band had their own last kiss-style tragedy uh, just as it was taking off on the charts. Um, the manager who introduced the song to them was actually killed, and a couple of the guys in the group were pretty badly injured, so um, they never got back in the studio, um, never made it back to the charts, obviously, but the song did. Um, 
Pearl Jam's version um, came about after Eddie found the 45 of the J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers version um, at an antique mall. And he liked it enough where he thought that it might be something that Pearl Jam could just throw into their sets just to change things up a little bit, you know, just kind of as a one-off cover. But they ended up trotting it out a few times on their yield tour. And eventually they liked it enough where they decided to record it. And um, they initially just wanted it to be like their fan club Christmas single. And it probably would have just ended as being the fan club Christmas single, but a lot of DJs were uh, Pearl Jam fan club members and they heard the song, they liked it and started playing it on the radio. So about six months later, uh, Pearl Jam did finally release it as an official single. Um, It ended up reaching the same peak on the regular top 40 as the J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers version, um, number two. Uh, It was kept off the top of the chart by J-Lo, believe it or not. But it also reached um, number two on this chart. Um, Their version of this song's pretty decent. Um, Eddie does a pretty good job of interpreting it. Um, He could have done something jokey and, you know, mock the song, but he decided to play it straight and it works. Um, Pearl Jam obviously hasn't gone anywhere. Um, They've racked up several more alternative hits. They're still out there selling out arenas and so on. So... Uh, number 27, we have Verve Pipe with Hero. I thought we were done with these guys in the 97 episode. In fact, I think I said that we were done with these guys in that episode. But anyway, they're they're back here in 99. Uh, this was their first single from the album that came after the album that had the Freshman on it, uh, which was self-titled. And they actually rip on the Freshman on one of the tracks on there, which is kind of funny. Uh, that song is called The F Word, by the way. And the F Word stands for the Freshman. Um, but like a lot of alt-rock follow-up albums, um, this didn't do nearly as well as the one before. Um, it actually peaked 134 places lower than uh, the album that had the freshman on it, which is a bigger drop-off on the charts than Dishwalla had with their second album. It's pretty bad when you're being outperformed by Dishwalla. But that's surprisingly, um, this was the only charting single from the album. It's one of those songs that's just like kind of so bad that it sticks with you. Uh, the chorus of this song was in my head for about three days after I listened to it for the show, uh, which was torture, by the way. But for the video for this, they may have been trying to spoof the video for Bittersweet Symphony by the similarly named um, Verve. Um, lead singer Brian Vander Ark is just kind of walking down the street like Richard Ashcroft was doing in that one. But instead of just running into the people, he's saving the day for people along the way. He trips a shoplifter. Um, he pushes the woman out of the way of a falling piano. Um, he's being a hero because the song's called Hero. Uh, but anyway, uh, this one peaked at number 17. This would be their last appearance on this chart. Uh, they are still out there touring on the alternative oldie circuit. Um, they're out there with um, Five for Fighting, um, the Superman song guys, last summer. Uh, but anyway, we are really done with the Verve Pipe now. So, yeah. Uh, number 26, we have the Goo Goo Dolls with Black Balloon. Uh, typical Goo Goo Doll song, but this one's about heroin, I guess. And this very well might be the blandest song ever written about heroin. Um, though Kay's Choice, Not an Addict, um, which I talked about a couple episodes, comes pretty close to that. <laughs> but anyway, this was a relatively decent-sized hit. It peaked at number 16 on the regular top 40, 13 here, number three on the adult contemporary charts. This was one of their last hits on this chart. Um, they more or less vanished from this format after the 
um, single cycle for their uh, Dizzy Up the Girl album. Um, but they ended up becoming a force on the adult contemporary charts. Um, they've racked up 19 hits over there since this. But anyway, um, number 25, we have 311 with Come Original. Uh, we are going to investigate 311 one last time, and I am so happy about that. Uh, this was from the first single from their Sound System album, an album which was produced by Genesis and Police producer um, Hugh Padgham of something which is incredibly odd. Uh, there is no gated reverb on this, which is kind of amazing for Hugh Padgham, but um, this more or less um, sounds like every other 311 song. Um, doesn't really have the mark of Genesis or police on it. Out of their four songs of theirs that I've talked about on the series, this one is the most tolerable, I guess, but it's still 311, but it, so it is kind of lousy. Um, this one peaked at number six, which was sort of a comeback for them. It was their first top 10 hit on this chart since All Mixed Up. Um, they've made it back onto this chart 16 times since then, which includes their uh, cover of The Cure's Love Song, which did actually make it to number one on here. And they are still out there touring, so you can check out 311 if you really want to. On number 24, we have Buck Cherry with For the Movies. Uh, there was a hilarious clip of highlights of these guys set from Woodstock 99 that was kind of circulating on Twitter a couple of years ago. And by highlights, I mean that it was just like really moronic stage banner. And every time that Josh, lead singer Josh Todd mentioned cocaine, which was a lot. And he even tried to get the crowd to do like, a, when I say co, you say cane <laughs> I, I tried to find this clip for this episode, but it happened way too far back or Elon Musk somehow managed to fuck up the search function at that place too, or something like that. So I couldn't find it. But anyway, um, Buck Cherry were sort of a glam metal outfit. Um, you could tell that Josh Todd desperately wanted to be the Axl Rose of like the late nineties or the Axl of the 21st century. And he nearly got a chance to do just that. Supposedly he was a finalist for being the lead singer of Velvet Revolver, uh, a job which um, Scott Weiland ended up getting, which would have been perfect for him. But maybe um, Slash and Duff thought that he was too much like Axel. Like maybe he auditioned and they thought, uh, this guy is exactly what we need, but he's just going to write My World Tour, make us put like CGI dolphins in our video. So let's just go with a Stone Temple Pilots guy to be on the safe side. But Anyway, this was a few years, um, that was a few years after this. In 1999, he was just kind of filling the Axel void because Axel was in like year five of making the Chinese Democracy album or whatever. And the song is more or less just a straight up hair metal ballad. It's like something Faster Pussycat or LA Guns would have put out in 1989. I'm not even sure why it made it on here, but... This was its peak on the chart. Um, they made it back here a few other times. Um, their biggest hit was Crazy Bitch, which made it to number 13 a few years after this. And they are still together, but um, Josh Todd is the only member left. At number 23, we have Joy Drop with Beautiful. Um, this is really bland. I don't remember ever hearing it, but it's kind of in the Atlantis garbage zone, I guess. Uh, they were from Canada. Um, the only really thing that's notable about them is lead singer Tara Sloan's post-joy-dropped career. Um, she was a contestant on the reality show uh, Rockstar NXS, which was um, an American Idol-style 
talent competition based around um, NXS trying to find a replacement for Michael Hutchins, a show that I'm embarrassed to admit that I watched. And the only things that I can remember about it were that the guys from NXS were like totally humorless and that it was hosted by Dave Navarro for some reason. But anyway, um, Tara ended up finishing 10th out of 15 um, there, but she kind of stayed in TV after that. Um, She was first the host of Breakfast Television, on the local city TV affiliate in um, Calgary. And then she later became the co-host of Hometown Hockey on Sportsnet, uh, which was a pregame show for their Monday night hockey coverage. And it involved Tara and Ron McLean uh, traveling to places like Lethbridge, Canmore, Prince Albert, and Saskatoon and hosting the show there. It was like the Canadian answer to college game day, I guess. Usually the show had a musical guest. Um, all these guests were CanCon, which isn't really surprising at all. And Tara actually reunited with Joy Drop for an episode that they did in Guelph, Ontario. But that show was canceled at the end of last NHL season. So who knows what Tara's doing now? But anyway, the song ended up peaking at number 20. Uh, number 22, Our Lady Peace with One Man Army. Uh, more CanCon here. Uh, this is slightly better than Superman's Dead, which I talked about a couple of episodes ago, but it's still pretty horrible. Uh, their label actually had to rush this out earlier than expected because a live version that they did of this at um, Woodstock 99 leaked onto Canadian alt-rock radio. And that version is almost identical to this. And the funny thing about their performance at Woodstock is that all of them are wearing the exact same outfits that they would end up wearing in the video for the song. And it's not like these were stage outfits or anything. These are just like regular t-shirts and jeans too. Um, but also in their performance, there are a ton of people with Canadian flags in the audience. Um, hopefully these people didn't just cross the border to see Our Lady Peace. But um, anyway, this topped both the alt rock and alternative charts in their native Canada, and it peaked at number 13 here. Um, they somehow had seven more hits on this chart. Why? Uh, number 21, um, Power Man 5000 with When Worlds Collide. Uh, more new metal here. Uh, they kind of sound like a mix between Corn and White Zombie. Um, the latter part isn't really surprising because uh, lead singer Spider One is actually Rob Zombie's little brother. Uh, the real names are Michael and Rob Cummings, um, in case you were wondering. And speaking of Rob Zombie and White Zombie, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they never popped up in this series. And they're not going to be in the top 20 of this chart. So I guess we're going to have to slam in the back of his Dragula some other time. But anyway, back to these guys. Um, Like Orgy, these guys kind of had like a boy band, new metal image going on. They were kind of like the in sync to Orgy's Backstreet Boys, I guess. I'm, I'm not sure who like the 98 Degrees or the O-Town of new metal would have been. But anyway, this song isn't horrible it's like a notch above horrible just like a tiny little notch though <laughs> it's it peaked at number 17 uh, they would make it back on this chart a couple other times uh number 20 we have oleander with why i'm here i don't remember this band or song at all but 
this is a total in utero era Nirvana ripoff. I mean, the verses are kind of like a mix of heart shaped box and dumb. And the course of it kind of shifts into like Francis Farmer will have a revenge on Seattle. I mean, it's really blatant. I'm shocked that they didn't get sued for this, uh, but they did perform this at uh, Woodstock 99 and lead singer Thomas Flowers um, says in the intro that he wrote this for every motherfucker that wrote that put you down Everyone who told you you weren't cool enough or bright enough or smart enough or tall enough or beautiful enough. Uh, for everybody who made you feel insignificant. Everyone who told you your dreams were too big. And then he says, dreams do come true before launching into this. I mean, I guess. Um, by the way, their drummer looked exactly like Guy Fieri. And um, Thomas Flowers was maybe about five feet tall. So I guess what's, that's where the tall enough portion of that intro comes in. But anyway, this peaked at number 13. They would have a couple more hits on this chart, um, all of which came within a year of this one. But anyway, um, moving on to number 19, we have Silver Chair with Anna's song, Open Fire, open fires in parentheses. Uh, this is their first appearance in the series since they topped the 95 chart that I talked about where I talked about tomorrow uh, we missed the four hits that they had in between then and now which were just as bad or worse as tomorrow i'm really sad that i didn't get to talk about any of these but this was the second single from their third album um neon ballroom uh, yes they were on their third album already um this was the last album that they put out while they were still teenagers and their last album to make any sort of impact here in the states but Anyway, this is a ballad. Um, the Anna in the song title isn't a woman named Anna. It's um, short for anorexia, which was something that um, lead singer Daniel Johns was kind of struggling with at the time. And without knowing that ahead of time, you would just think that this was a standard love song. I mean, he mentions the word anorexic just once. And I guess the on my knees for you line in the chorus might refer to anorexia, but it's not really obvious. I mean, John's did eventually get better in case you're wondering. Um, but anyway, uh, this is better than tomorrow. I will give it that. And it's a lot better than the single that preceded this, um, which was the anthem for the year of 2000, but it is still pretty lousy. Um, this peaked at number 12. Um, they made it back here twice before breaking up in 2011. Um, Daniel, Daniel Johns is still active as a solo artist, and he actually put out an album which topped the Aussie album charts earlier this year. Um, that one hasn't been released in this country, as far as I can tell. Number 18, we have Lenny Kravitz with American Woman. <laughs> I promised that Lenny Kravitz would be back at this episode with the cover song. And, well, here he is. Um, this was done for the soundtrack of Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, uh, where it was used over the closing credits. I thought that it was used to introduce Heather Graham's character in the movie, but they actually used um, the Guess Who's original instead there. But that soundtrack is mostly covers, by the way. I mean, you had Elvis Costello covering Dionne Warwick, of Scott Weiland covering the zombies, R.E.M. covering Tommy James of the Shondells, and so on. Uh, but none of those were hits. Um, this one was. Um, he slows it down quite a bit. Um, he almost turns it into a blues song, I guess. Um, Lenny decided to do this instead of playing it straight, mainly because he couldn't figure out how to um, replicate Randy Bachman's guitar tone from the original. And I was kind of surprised that this one only peaked at number seven on here. Um, and it also completely missed out on the regular top 40 because I do remember hearing this one a lot. I mean, maybe I just remember it being on MTV or VH1 a lot. But 
anyway, this won a Grammy for best male rock performance. Um, somehow Lenny won that award four years in a row. Um, he would make a handful of other appearances on this chart. The last one coming in 2004, but none of those are really worth mentioning here. Um, so moving on, we have uh, Filter at number 17 with Welcome to the Fold. Uh, this was the first single from their title, the record album, their first album in five years. And it more or less sounds like all their other singles, which is okay if you like Filter, I guess. But I don't like Filter. Anyway, this was its peak on the chart. Um, that's all I'm going to say about it. Uh, number 16, we have Lit with Ziplock. Um, this was the second single for their breakthrough, A Place in the Sun album. And it sounds remarkably similar to the first single. Um, we actually have that one coming up in a little bit, and I have a lot more to say about that song. So I, I'm just going to say everything else that I have to say for this band for that one. But anyway, this one peaked at number 11. Uh, number 15, we have Days of the New with Enemy. Um, this is another band that I thought we were completely done with in the series. Uh, this was the first single from their second album, which was self-titled. All three of their albums were self-titled, and they all have a painting of a dead tree on the cover. Um, their fans called this album green because the background of the painting is mostly green, in case you're wondering. Um, but the main guy in Days of the New, um, Travis Meeks, kind of fired the entire rest of the band before they went to the studio to record this. Uh, those guys ended up becoming the new metal band Tantric, by the way. But... Anyway, since those guys were gone, it gave Travis a chance to experiment a little bit and instead of trying to tailor his songs for like a full grunge band. On this one, he's dabbling in electronica, which wasn't what I was expecting from Days of the New at all. It is better than their first two hits from their first album, but is more or less just like proto-Nickelback. Uh, this peaked at number 10, and this was their last appearance ever on this chart. Uh, number 14, we have Creed with Hire. I, I was thinking of just imitating Scott Staff here and just kind of leaving at that. Kind of what I did with Yellow but Ledbetter in the first episode with Eddie Vedder. But I decided that I probably should torture all of you listeners out there with that. But anyway, this song is about getting to a place with golden streets where blind men see. And this place is higher, so it has to be heaven, right? And Scott's very subtly... Um, posing like Jesus on the crucifix in the video. So obviously this has to be about getting up to heaven and hanging out with the son of God for all of eternity, right? Wrong. Scott Snap claims that it's just about lucid dreaming and about how you can use that power to create anything and go anywhere. Like going to heaven and meeting Jesus. But anyway, this was a huge hit. Um, it had three different stints at number one on this chart and spent a record 17 weeks on top of the mainstream rock charts. And it was also their very first top 40 hit. Um, it peaked at number seven over there. Um, they never made it back to number one on here. They had a handful of other alternative hits before they broke up in 2012. And um, Scott Stapp has actually turned to acting or is attempting to turn to acting right now. He's going to appear as Frank Sinatra in an upcoming biopic of Ronald Reagan. Um, that movie also stars Robert Davey and um, John Voight. So with those guys in there, I'm sure it's going to be very critical of the Gipper. <laughs> anyway, uh, moving on to number 13 here, we have um, Chris Cornell with Can't Change Me. Uh, this was his debut solo single, and it isn't really that great. It's somewhat poppy. Um, 
there's very little Soundgarden in here. It's like something Brian Adams would have put out in the late 90s. And the video for this is even like a Brian Adams style video. Uh, this did fairly well on this chart. It peaked at number seven, which was right around where most of the singles from the last Soundgarden album peaked on here. But um, the album that it came off of, um, Euphoria Morning, was kind of a disappointment. It slipped on the charts pretty quickly. It sold maybe about a fifth of what the last Soundgarden album did. Um, maybe people weren't ready for Chris Carnell pop star. So he did the smart thing and he quickly hooked up with the three guys from um, Rage Against the Machine and um, started up Audio Slave and put out some very successful but highly forgettable grunge in the early 2000s. Um, he made it back on here twice after this, um, one of which was um, a posthumous cover of Guns N' Roses Patient which came out a couple of years ago, which seems like an odd choice of a cover for Chris Cornell. But then I remember that Soundgarden did open for Guns N' Roses on one of the Use Your Illusion tours or whatever. But anyway, that's it for Chris Cornell. Uh, number 12, we have Sugar Way with Someday. Uh, this was the second single from their 1459 album. Uh, that album title is kind of alluding to Andy Warhol's quote about how everybody was going to be famous for 15 minutes. And they're kind of joking that they've almost burned through all of that with Fly. Uh, but they managed to pack a lot into that last second. I mean, first they had a second hit with Every Morning, a song which was almost as big of a hit as Fly. And topped this chart, made it to number three on the regular top 40. And then this song um, went and made it to the top 10 on both charts. I'm not sure if Martin McGrath's stint on Celebrity Jeopardy also falls into that second. But anyway, that's pretty impressive for an act that everybody, including the band itself, was writing off in 1999. And this is kind of a crooner type song. Um, we're a long way from their song Mean Machine here. I, I thought that the tune for this might have come from somewhere else. Um, they used a Malo Suavecito for every morning. So I just kind of assumed that they did the same thing here. The strings on this kind of remind me of a theme from a summer place. But no, this song is entirely Sugar Ray. It is a lot better than Fly. It is a halfway decent pop song. I'll give them that. Uh, these guys are still around, and not only are they regulars on the alternative Oli circuit, but they may have created the whole thing. Uh, they, they put together a rock cruise in 2013, which included uh, the Spin Doctors, Gin Blossoms, Cracker, Vertical Horizon, the Verve Pipe, Marcy Playground, as well as solo sets by Ed Kowalczyk and Ed Rolland from Collective Soul. Uh, this cruise never happened. Um, there were some issues with Carnival, so they ended up calling the whole thing off. But they weren't really satisfied with that, so they quickly put together a package tour with most of the same bands on dry land. It called it the Under the Sun Tour, which apparently was successful. So maybe without that, you might not be able to see like Eve Six or whoever at your like local winery or casino. Um, you have Sugar Ray to think for um, being able to do that, I guess. But anyway, uh, moving on to number 11, we have Tonic with You Wanted More. I've somehow managed to land on every single Tonic song that made the alternative charts in this series. And like the other two, this one basically sounds like it could have been a live outtake. Uh, this was from the American Pie soundtrack. Um, it's been decades since I've seen that movie, so I couldn't tell you where it actually pops up in the movie. It could be in the pie fucking scene. It could be in the band camp scene. It could be the scene where they um, coin the MILF 
or the term the MILF. But um, I wasn't going to bother to find out, um, but it's in there somewhere. Um, the video for this isn't a movie video. There aren't any like clips of Jason Biggs with a pie. There aren't any cameos by Sean William Scott or Mina Suvari, but it does have a high school theme. Um, the guys from Tonic are playing teachers and janitors. A lot of typical high school stuff is going on around them. And in the choruses, they're rocking out in the gym. Um, they probably could have thrown in a Chris Klein or a Tara Reid cameo in there, but you know, that would have deprived of it deprived of, of like another five seconds of the lead singer buffing the floor or the bass player like messing around with an overhead projector and we wouldn't have wanted that uh, but this one peaked at number 10 um it made it to number three on the mainstream rock charts um they are still together out there on the alternative only circuit um last year they were touring uh, with collective soul and better than ezra so you could probably check them out at a casino or a rib fest in your neck of the woods Number 10, we have Low Fidelity All-Stars featuring Pigeon Head with uh, Battle Flag. Uh, this was a remix, um, even though it's credited as the Low Fidelity All-Stars featuring Pigeon Head. Uh, Pigeon Head is doing about 90% of the work here. Um, Pigeon Head were from Seattle. Um, it was a collaboration between um, Sean, singer Sean Smith and producer Steve Fisk. Uh, Smith was a member of the groups um, Satchel and Brad. Uh, the latter of those two was a Pearl Jam side project. I thought that they had a hit on this chart with A Day Brings, but I guess I was wrong about that. That one did get played on the alternative station in Cincinnati fairly often in 1970, any, or 1997 anyway. But um, Fisk worked as a producer and engineer on a ton of Sub Pop and K-Records releases in the late 80s and early 90s. I'm not going to run through all of his credits, but he did work with Nirvana, Soundgarden, Beat Happening, um, The Screaming Trees, and so on. And the group was more or less a Prince tribute or like an attempt to emulate Prince. Uh, Battle Flag came off of their second and last album, The Full Sentence, which came out a couple years before this. Uh, the original version wasn't really that much different than what's charting here in 99. It's just slightly more Prince-like. I'm not sure how this one ended up in the Low Fidelity All-Stars hands. I'm not sure if they just had the Pigeon Head album and decided to remix it or Pigeon Head sought them out. But anyway, pretty much all they did with this was swap out like the overtly Prince-like elements and like put in like a Chemical Brothers style beat in there. Um, they made it worse, to be honest. But the people in 1999 wanted something like the Chemical Brothers more than they wanted something like prince which is odd because it is 1999 um get it 1999 um but it worked out for everyone involved um this ended up peaking at number six on this chart I mean, it was the only hit on here for either pigeon head or the low fidelity all-stars and it was also a top 40 hit over in the uk on uh, number nine we have kid rock with cowboy it's kid rock again and he's doing his white trash pimp thing again but this time he's a cowboy baby yeah um this is probably where bro country started um, without this you wouldn't have had like florida georgia line or whatever and it also gave everybody a little bit of a preview of kid rock's eventual country turn uh, the lyrics of this are almost identical to ba wada ba um but there is one line that i wanted to point out which is the i'm not straight out of compton i'm straight out of the trailer line um 
Kid Rock definitely was not from the trailer. Um, his dad owned a Lincoln Mercury dealership, and he grew up on a six-acre estate in the northern suburbs of Detroit, complete with a swimming pool, a tennis court, a five-car garage, a horse barn, and an apple orchard. Uh, but to Kid Rock's credit, he hasn't denied any of this. He hasn't put out any, like, no, I really am from the trailer statements or trying to get pictures of his parents' place taken off the internet. I mean, the white trash part probably isn't an act, though. I mean, you can be rich and still be white trash. I mean, just look at Kid Rock's buddy, Donald Trump. But anyway, this one peaked at number five, and this was his biggest hit on the charts. On number eight, we have Lit with My Own Worst Enemy. Uh, this was the song that I was alluding to earlier um, when I was talking about Ziploc um, down at number 16. Um, Ziploc sounds exactly like this. Uh, it's power pop or pop punk or power punk or pop pop or whatever you want to call it. I don't really want to go into Lit's bio here, what the song is actually about. What I want to talk about is a live performance of the song that's on YouTube that probably does a better job of explaining the whole decline of alternative rock and its four-minute running time that I've been able to do in like the past six episodes of this podcast. I saw this posted on a message board probably about a decade ago. It's from a radio festival in the Bay Area that took place about three months before this chart. Um, seemingly like every alternative station had one of these festivals in Cleveland. There was buzzard fest in Minnesota. There was edge fest. I was never in Cincinnati during the summer, but I'm assuming channel Z did something like this too. It was basically like 10 bands. that just happened to be on the radio at that exact time appearing at the same place at the same time. Uh, the stations promoted these things to death. I, I could probably recite recite the ad for the buzzard fest 95 from memory because i heard the thing so often on the radio um huge crowds turned out for these things they usually sold out the big amphitheater in town uh, but anyway on to lit's performance from live 105's bfd festival of <laughs> uh, their 11th on the bill behind um the chili peppers orgy blink 182 live sugar ray limp biscuit pennywise kid rock smash mouth and eve six um, so this was a day daytime set, obviously. Uh, they were above a few bands, um, so it wasn't like they were opening this thing. But anyway, the clip starts out normal. The camera's on the band. Um, they're thanking fans for requesting their songs and um, introducing this one. But then they pan over to the crowd, and there's maybe like 20 people there. Huge amphitheater, 20 people. And the crowd's weird, too. It's like half of them are teenage girls. The other half are very middle-aged looking people. It could be that they are like the parents of the teens or they're and they're like just sticking around for the show instead of like dropping them off and making them like watch alt rock. Um, it could be that they had like season tickets to the amphitheater and just couldn't like unload the ticket for the show on anyone and just decided to show up because they didn't have anything else to do. But Anyway, they're all way too old to be at an alt-rock fest in 1999. If they showed up at an alt-rock festival now, it would make sense. I mean, look, I mean, I look like these people, I guess. <laughs> so, but man, 20 people. And these guys had the biggest alternative rock hit of 1999. Uh, this song was number one for 11 weeks and 20 people showed up to see them. I mean, what happened to alternative rock? <laughs> But anyway, um, yeah, this is, this is still on YouTube if you want to check it out. And 
Lit is still around. Um, they put out an album this year, and based on recent press photos, they dress exactly like they did in 1999. Um, same haircuts, same complicated facial hair, um, same Guy Fieri shirts. <laughs> but anyway, um, moving along here, we have The Offspring at number seven um, with The Kids Aren't All Right. Um, the Offspring are the second of three acts to appear in the first and last episode of the series. Um, Come Out and Play and Self-Esteem both made um, the 94 chart that I talked about. Uh, but this one was the third single from their Americana album. And unlike the first two, Pretty Fly for a White Guy and Why Don't You Get a Job, this one wasn't a novelty song. Um, They were playing it straight here. And not surprisingly, this one did worse on the charts than the other two. Um, Thematically, it's somewhat similar to Come Out and Play. It's basically about teenagers fucking up and getting in trouble like that. Typical Southern California punk stuff. It's nothing special. Uh, This peaked at number six, um, and it was used as the closing credit song um, for one of the two Woodstock 99 documentaries that came out recently uh, because the kids weren't all right, I guess. And the offspring were actually there at Woodstock 99, and they brought the pretty, pretty fly for a white guy kid on stage with them. I mean, God, Jesus Christ. Anyway. At number six, we have Len with Steal My Sunshine. Uh, Len were a Canadian group, um, another Canadian group. We're probably getting close to meeting CanCon requirements <laughs> with this chart. Uh, but they were led by siblings, uh, Mark and Sharon Costanzo. And initially, they sounded a lot more stereotypically um, alternative rock. I was actually kind of shocked when I heard one of their first songs early songs for the first time. I was like, are you sure this is actually Len? Um, but by their third album in 99, they were turning a little bit towards hip hop, which is where you get this one. It's built around a sample taken from the instrumental break and Andrea True Connections, More, 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 a, a song which has been discussed on this podcast a couple times before. Um, but this is kind of a perfect summer song, um, even though there's nothing really in the lyrics that have to do with summer aside from the word sunshine it it just kind of has that summer feel to it and the video for it is also very summer-ish um they're cruising around on scooters around a beach town somewhere but um not surprisingly this did take off in the summer of 99 it made it all the way up to number nine on the top 40 and number five here and even though you heard this one constantly on mtv and the radio i never really got sick of it it's a good song it's probably one of the only decent songs on this chart to be honest um but they're never able to get back on the charts after this and i mean not on any chart i mean not just the alternative charts they just kind of vanished from the charts Uh, but they did put out a couple more albums before they finally called it quits Uh, one of their members actually ended up in the indie rock group broken social scene which is almost as odd to me as them starting out as a regular alternative rock group. But anyway, um, on to number five here, we have Live with the Dolphins Cry. (laughs) Um, Live are the third and last act to appear um, in the first and last episode of this series. Uh, They made it in 94 with um, I Alone. Um, And I think they might have made the most appearances in this series as well, but I haven't really kept track. And I might be lumping like all the live copycats uh, that popped up in the 97 chart to their total. But 
anyway, this was um, their first single from their um, The Distance to Here album. And it's the only single from that album that I actually remember. Um, the other two, Run to the Water and They Stood Up for Love, did actually chart, though, which isn't really surprising. I mean, Ed Kowalczyk could have farted into a microphone and it would have made it to at least like number 30 on here. But they were starting to sound a little bit like their copycats on this one. I mean, this very easily could have been like a tonic Matchbox 20 year Verve Pipe song. The thing that makes it genuine live, aside from actually being performed live, is that no one on earth, aside from Ed Kowalczyk, would call a rock song The Dolphins Cry. And the title of this has always confused me. Um, it's the possessive form of dolphins, so it's just one dolphin for one thing. But was this dolphin weeping? Uh, was it clicking loudly? Was the clicking its cry? I, I mean, maybe it was a Miami dolphin. Um, maybe Dan Marino was weeping because he never won a Super Bowl or he was crying out because he got sacked. I mean, we're live football fans. I mean, who knows and who really cares? Um, there aren't any dolphins in this video, um, Miami or otherwise. Um, live are just kind of playing in the middle of the street in a city that's on the verge of being swept away by a tsunami. And it's strongly implied that live can control this tsunami. Uh, when they play soft, um, it subsides a little bit. But when they rock out of the chorus, uh, the wave grows by like about 20 feet. I mean, just play lightning crashes live. I mean, what are you doing here? Uh, but anyway, it ends up with like live taking the brunt of the tsunami. But uh, they are okay. But presumably they have to buy like new amps and everything. But uh, this one peaked at number three, and it was the last of their eight top 10 hits on this chart. And they are technically still around, but it is just um, Ed Kowalczuk. Um, he fired the rest of the band a couple of months ago and uh, just decided to keep going on performing as live without the other three guys. And this might turn into a situation where there's two competing lives out there on the alternative oldies circuit. Um, the other guys have toured without ed before so that is possible so you're gonna have to make sure that you're seeing ed kowalczyk's live or chad gracie's live of uh, featuring patrick dalheimer at the casino or county fair i guess <laughs> but anyway um moving on to number four here oh god we have smash mouth with all-star <laughs> Uh, this was written for the soundtrack of the Ben Stiller, William H. Macy, Janine Garofalo superhero comedy Mystery Men. And the original video for the song did feature clips from that movie and cameos by those people. But it's since become more associated with the movie Shrek. Um, it's the theme song to that movie. And while it's playing, you get the whole introduction to the character Shrek. He's bathing in mud, um, brushing his teeth with slime, um, killing fish in a pond by farting and so on. But anyway, um, this one was written by their guitarist, Greg Camp. Um, supposedly before he put this one together, um, Smash Mouse manager um, handed him the most recent copy of Billboard, pointed to the top 40 and I'm not sure if this was like the regular top 40 or this chart, but he said, I want all of this in there. I'm not sure if he accomplished that exactly, but he did manage to write something that was guaranteed to make it on the top 40. It's not a perfect pop song by any means. It's pretty annoying, but it's annoying enough where it kind of sticks with you. So it, it was pretty much guaranteed to be a hit. Um, It was Smash Mouth's biggest hit and it 
is their easily easily their best known song. It made it to number four on the regular top forty and number two here, and it's been revived sort of ironically by millennials in the past decade or so in large part because of its use in shrek it's been used in a lot of memes and stuff like that um mashup artist neil sissiaraga actually did an entire album of all-star mashups called mouth sounds as in like smash mouth sounds and um he mashed up all-star with um smells like teen spirit imagine the full house theme um santana smooth um and yes, Orinoco flow and so on. And all of these mashups are better than this song. And he actually has Shrek on the album cover. But because of this ironic revival, um, it has puffed up on um, Billboard's year-end streaming chart four times, um, peaking at number six in 2019. Um, it didn't make it on last year's chart, so maybe its moment has passed. But who knows? It could pop up in the year-end um, 22 chart. Um, we'll just have to wait about a month to find that out. But anyway, um, number three, you have Limp Biscuit with Nookie. <laughs> uh, this was just a couple of months after Fred Durst allegedly incited a riot at Woodstock 99. Uh, the only other time I talked about um, Limp Biscuit on this podcast, I kind of went through this. But anyway... Um, they were playing their song um, Break Stuff, and he more or less encouraged everybody in the crowd to let all of their problems out of the pit. Um, he probably did this at all their shows. I didn't really feel like sifting through a bunch of Limp Biscuit live clips to find out, though, but I just assume he did. I mean, probably nothing major happened there, but at Woodstock, he was talking to 300,000 people who had been in 95-degree heat for a couple days with very little water, no shade, no working bathrooms, people who were really pissed off. So when he said break stuff, they ended up doing it. And he ended up getting a lot of blame for anything. Uh, whether any of this was actually deserved, who knows? But anyway, on to Nookie here. I really hated this song. I mean, really hated. I could not understand why this was on radio and MTV all the time or why anyone on earth would actually like this. It was just a horrible piece of shit. I didn't get it, um, but I have since softened my stance on Nookie. And now I think it's hilarious that something this bad and this dumb could be a major hit. I mean, how did this happen? I mean, he's talking about sticking a cookie up your yeah. <laughs> this was its peak on the chart, which sort of surprised me. I, I thought that this very easily would have been a number one. And not only that, like a number one for multiple weeks, even. Uh, they would eventually make it to the top with the follow-up single to this, uh, Rearranged, which was actually their only number one on here. Uh, they did reunite a couple of years ago. Um, Fred Durst kind of looks like Kenny Rogers now which is um, kind of hilarious, but you can probably check out um, Lip Biscuit somewhere. But anyway, on to number two, um, we have Blink-182 with What's My Age Again. Um, it's weird, but this is probably the best song on the entire chart. It's, it's weird because this is Blink-182 after all, but it really is a decent pop punk song. I mean, sure, the lyrics are immature, but the song is about being immature, so it kind of works. They're sticking to themes, um, the song was originally called the Peter Pan Complex, but their um, label made it change it because they were afraid of getting sued by Disney, who owned the rights to Peter Pan, a decision that the band wasn't really on board with, uh, but they've since come around to that. But 
the whole song came about um, after Mark Hoppus um, from Blink-182 um, attempted to play um, Jar by Green Day, um, a song that I talked about in the 95 episode on his bass and somehow screwed up the bass line and landed on what would be the bass line for this song. Um, the, the band didn't really think much of this song at first. Um, they just thought of it as a joke song, and they were kind of shocked when their label thought that it had hit potential. I mean, it, it is really catchy. So, I mean, the label was right that it was going to be a hit, but the video definitely helped um, this one become a success. I mean, the guys are kind of streaking through LA with like their naughty bits blurred out. It's memorable. It's kind of goofy. It's pretty immature. I mean, kind of sticking with themes again, but the band later had regrets about doing it. Um, Tom DeLong said that it stopped being funny like 10 minutes into making the video, but they reprised the bit on the billboard awards and on an episode of two girls, a guy and a pizza place. I, I never thought that I'd bring up two guys a girl or two girls a guy at a pizza place on the show. But anyway, um this was its peak on the chart. Um this is another song that I thought for sure went to number one, but it didn't. And um Blink 182 um just recently reunited the original lineup. Um Tom DeLong had been off um, researching UFOs for a few years. I, I'm not joking about that. He is actually a UFO researcher. Uh, but they're going out on tour next year, and they are playing mostly arenas. I mean, who would have thought that Blink-182 would have been big enough in twenty in the 2020s to play basketball arenas? I certainly didn't. But anyway, um, we are on to number one here, the final number one of this series. And the final number one is Scar Tissue by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, a band that theoretically could have appeared in the first episode, but they didn't. Uh, they were in the second episode, though. But anyway, um, the Chili Peppers have spent a grand total of 91 weeks on top of this chart and have had 15 number ones. Um, both of those are records, so it's kind of fitting that we're closing out this series on alternative rock and the alternative charts with them um this was from their californication album which was their first album in four years uh they reunited with john frusciante on this one who was their guitarist when they first became big in the late 80s and early 90s on this and it seemed like a return to the f return to form after the disappointing um, One Hot Minute album, an album which I mentioned a couple episodes ago, which was more or less disowned by the band. But anyway, this is the first single off of it. It's kind of a lighter song by their standards. It's kind of laid back, I guess. It's kind of in the same realm as Under the Bridge or Soul to Squeeze, a, a couple of their other hits. But um, supposedly the first verse of this is about their former guitarist Dave Navarro. Um, he's the sarcastic Mr. Know-it-all that he met that Anthony Kiedis mentions. Uh, but the rest of the song is just typical Chili Peppers horn dog nonsense. It's not about Dave Navarro. Um, Anthony Kiedis doesn't really have much range as a lyricist. <laughs> I mean, it is a decent song. I, they've definitely put out worse shit than this. Um, this ended up speaking. Uh, this ended up spending um, 16 weeks on top of this chart, which was another record for the Chili Peppers. Um, it beat out Sex and Candy for the title there. Um, it has been passed by a few tracks since then. Um, Feel It Still by Portugal the Man is the current record holder. It spent 20 weeks on top of the charts. But this one also topped the mainstream rock charts and um, made it 
to the top 10 on the regular top 40. Um, you still hear it a lot on the radio. It never really went away. But anyway, um, that does it. Um, I hope you enjoy this little journey through the death spiral of 90s alternative rock. I, I'm actually going to put a link to a playlist of almost every song that I've talked about it. Um, in this series in the episode description so you can experience the death spiral yourself i i'm saying almost all of the songs are on there because love roller coaster by the chili peppers and get them out of here by sprung monkey aren't on spotify for some reason but i'm, I'm sure you're all disappointed that you're gonna miss out on those but Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this series as much as I did. And um, thanks for listening, and I'll see you around. Bye. <laughs>